Welcome to Rough Talk on the BBC Global Service with me, Stephen Sackwist. My guest today, Dr. Dabney Nair, was an obscure American historian known, if at all, for a series of fairly conventional biographies of U.S. presidents in the anodyne tradition of David McCulloch and Doris Kearns Goodwin. All that changed earlier this month when his latest book, Woodrow Wilson, A 20th Century Trump, debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Dr. Nair's thesis, which some have called dubious and others outrageous, is that America's 28th president, who championed progressive policy measures and campaigned for global cooperation, was an eerie foreshadowing of America's 45th president, Donald Trump, who had no interest in either. Dr. Nair, welcome to Rough Talk. Overjoyed to be here. Dr. Nair, why should anyone believe that your attempt to draw parallels between Woodrow Wilson and Donald Trump is anything but an attempt to capitalize on the publishing industry phenomenon known as the Trump bump, wherein any book with the former president's name is an instant success? Because, Stephen, I learned while researching a biography of Wilson that there were areas of great concurrence between two presidents separated by a century. Both were political novices who turned their lack of experience into an asset. Both were racists who presided over an era of racial conflict and violence. Both were utter and complete failures in combating a pandemic that was killing hundreds of thousands of Americans. Hang on, hang on, Dr. Ness, sorry to interrupt, but you are comparing a lifelong academic, a man with a PhD, with someone who has never learned the rules of capitalization. They both tried to govern the United States while brain damaged. Fair point. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 28, Woodrow Wilson. Thank you for enjoying DB Comedy Presents The Electables. If you would like to keep supporting us, please consider a donation or tip. Go to fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy Presents The Electables, and leave us a gift. Your donation is tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law and will be used to keep us on the air and in the algorithms. Thank you. Hello, DB Comedy fans. Yes, we are back with one back and uh, kind of loaded for bear. This uh, Woodrow Wilson has drawn some attention and drawn some... Derision. Uh, yeah. So uh, let us. So much different than what I was told in high school about him. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, who, is, who, who are we, Joe? Who are we first? Mm-hmm. Well, as you heard. Very existential. I, who are we? <laughs> Why are we here? And what are we eating? But we'll do that. Well, you you heard me. I'm Joe, and Paul called me Joe, and that was me calling Paul Paul, right, Paul? Because Paul is Paul. Mm-hmm. 
Who else do we have? Sandy is Sandy. I'm Sylvia. And I remain Patrick. Yes. And we have uh, an Americanist. Oh, I just took a big bite of food. So Don't just say food, in. Chelsea. This is from Bon Appetit. It is, quote, a giant, freaky, joyful pot of greens to redeem my butter-drenched soul. And that was yeah. our first installment of Chelsea's Food Club. This time we're doing food, too. <laughs> we are not sponsored by Bon Appetit, but we might. Who are we talking about tonight, Joe? Tonight, we are talking about Woodrow Wilson, who first thing I learned is he's, his actual birth name is Thomas Woodrow Wilson. But for whatever reason, Woodrow sounded more him. I well, guess. I think he, he took a good look at himself and decided that Thomas was not boring enough. He was Tommy while he was young. And then he definitely he decided, I guess, maybe once he was a Princeton man, it became Woodrow, had more gravitas. Yeah, Woodrow, he was very close to his mother and Woodrow was her maiden name. Mm -hmm. So it served many a purpose. He was, he grew up the son of a Presbyterian minister who also served as a chaplain for the Confederate Army. Shocking. Unbelievable. Southerner all... who, who had Confederate leanings. I am shocked. This is all so on brand. <laughs> and yeah, he'd always been fascinated by politics. He was apparently the star of the family, spoiled absolutely rotten. The biographer whom I just read says his younger brother, Joseph, also known as Josie, was like, you know, was the beta. He was the he was the cheaper version. This family is terrible with names. <laughs> he was Without the doubt. neighborhood, a raw flame alive wire. <laughs> but, uh, amusingly, <laughs> he prayed like a Roman. <laughs> amusingly, uh, about his earlier political career. It looked like Wilson at first was studying to be an attorney, and I believe he became an attorney. But he did, that, and he hated it. Because and he hated he just it. Does not like the Constitution. Yeah, his first. <laughs> he was a very active debater at the University of Virginia and Johns Hopkins, which is and that that apparently whetted his appetite. But his love was political history, and very so, much so one of the things I was curious about with Wilson being our only president with a PhD in American history and being an academic, I thought, huh, I wonder what his thesis was. Well, lo, lo and behold, his thesis, his audience, thesis, I wish you could see Chelsea's excited face as she's waiting for this. News. Yes. So Wilson's thesis was called, are you ready for it? Congressional government, a study in American politics. <laughs> Just as boring as I could have hoped. Yep. But it was, however, a huge success. Because his... He made some good money on that book. He did. So what was his thesis? Mm -hmm. uh, basically that... Uh, well, what, well, he kind of would, would have preferred Congress to be more in line with British Parliament. Because what British, that would have done... British parliamentary system. Yep. Shocking. Yes, because what he wanted was a stronger presidency. And that was the thrust of his argument. And I gather that was sort of what piqued people's interest in him as a politician to say nothing of that uh, chronic academic thing of, well, I don't want to just be a theoretician. I want to actually do something, or at least uh, some, some do. I do but I still that. just can't understand how you would sell such a hoity-toity 
to the public. The progressive era was in part a reaction against machine politics, or what would we come to know as machine politics. He owed nothing to the machine and his great and his grand achievements as governor in the two years he was governor of New Jersey was not kowtowing to uh, the political machine present in New Jersey and establishing a utility board. Also, I mean, New Jersey only really has one thing to be proud of, and it's Princeton, so. (laughs) And Springsteen. Come at me, New Jersey. And Springsteen, yeah. And Bon Jovi, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) And and the boss. I'm sure Springsteen was singing Born to Run in the time of (laughs) (laughs) He He smashed uh, the election in uh 1908 sorry 1910 to, to become right. governor of new jersey but then in the 1912 election the republicans gained control of the house and he basically had to spend the rest of his tenure uh vetoing bills but he still managed to uh again in new jersey like he would in the presidency win some concessions for women and children in in labor and uh you know improving factory uh, working conditions and busting up some trusts mm-hmm. like standard oil which uh was big in new jersey at the time the things for which we'd remember him if indeed we did remember him would be the federal reserve board implementing an eight hour workday for railroad employees and banning child labor. These are progressive, uh, early 20th century progressive agenda. We have to qualify it, but he was a progressive. He believed in treating workers fairly, treating white Christian workers fairly. Let's be honest about that as well. And he pursued that agenda fairly successfully. He was a great legislative president, at least in his first term. another episode of Always Listen to Your Mother. I'm your host, Norma Bates, here every week to remind you to listen to your mother. From eat your broccoli to don't hang out with them, they're bad news. Moms always know and moms always have your back. We've gotten a lot of letters about last week's guest, John Quincy Adams, whose homage to his mother, Abigail Adams, just brought us to tears. Today's guest is a lesser-known public servant, Tennessee State Representative Harry Byrne. Thank you for having me, Norma. Now let's welcome the woman who convinced her waffling spawn to do the right thing. Harry Burns's mother, Feb Ensminger Byrne. Uh-oh. Do, do you have to? Harry, it is the name of the show. Oh. Yeah, right. Hello, Norma. Good to be here. Harry, don't slouch. Yes, Ma. So, Representative Byrne, how long were you in the Tennessee State Legislature? I was in the House from 1918 to 1922. That must have been a pretty heady time to be in government, eh? Oh, yes, it was quite an exciting time. I never really thought I'd be such a critical player in such an important moment in history. 
winning the Great War, forming the League of Nations, ratifying prohibition. And not one, but two constitutional amendments. And you played such a pivotal role in the 19th one. Oh, yes. Yeah. Women's vote. That was a difficult one. But was it? I, uh, well, yes. Was it? Why would that be so hard? You were the final holdout. Oh, it all came down to that final vote in Tennessee, the last state that we needed to ratify the amendment. And my Harry was the last vote in that last state. So what took you so long? I had a lot of pressure on me. There were really good arguments made from both sides. Seriously? Well, yeah. So, Feb, tell us how you convinced your dithering son to finally give women some basic human rights. Oh, Norma, don't be so hard on the boy. He wouldn't hurt a fly. Why, that sounds just like my boy, Norman. Uh, you don't say. Yes. It's almost like he and I are the same person. Right. Anyway, I simply wrote Harry a letter. He just needed a little nudge. What did you say that had such an effect? I said, hurrah and vote for suffrage. Don't keep them in doubt. I noticed some of the speeches against her. They were bitter. I've been watching to see how you stood, but have not noticed anything yet. Yeah, a little passive-aggressive, if you ask me. What was that? Nothing. Oh, and I told him to be a good boy and help Mrs. Cat put the rat in ratification. <laughs> no more from Mama this time. <laughs> With lots of love, Mama. No more from Mama this time, she says. I knew I'd never hear the end of it. And if I didn't vote for suffrage, then she... That's right. If you didn't vote, then what? I... There'd be no sweet potato pie for dessert that year. Seriously, I can thank sweet potato pie for my right to vote? Oh, it could be worse, dear. He could have a pension for figgy pudding. And, oh, my Harry had some extra helpings of sweet potato pie that year. <laughs> well, that's all for today's episode of Always Listen to Your Mother. Next week, we'll talk to Michelangelo's mother, who encouraged him as a boy to think higher when she caught him drawing on the walls. Bye for now, and remember, wear your boots and always listen to your mother. another guest oh yeah There's also... james james are you joining us from saranac high school yes i am joining you i just got back from the uh volleyball senior night we we won our first match of the year on senior night so Yay. uh oh woodrow wilson probably would have liked this we beat the catholic school tonight oh. um... <laughs> <laughs> hey james why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners uh, good evening, James McCray. I'm a social studies teacher at Saranac Junior Senior High School and uh, excited to join you guys uh, from uh, my beautiful classroom here. It is beautiful. We can oh, see it right back behind him. 
what was the mood of the United States in 1912? Just in what was the zeitgeist? I think that politically there had kind of been a sense that, I mean, Taft was kind of politically spent, right? So like they, Taft kind of tries to be kind of this moderate between the kind of two wings, of the Republican party and trying to say, okay, well, we can, we can do some progressive things, but maybe I'm not going to do it in the same, I'm just going to blow up Congress the way Teddy Roosevelt did it. Uh, and he had a much more kind of circumspect view of executive power, you know, being someone who is, you know, so like rule and law based, but I don't think it really helped him as an administrator. I think that oftentimes what presidents who try to be moderate find out is that they piss everybody off and that they don't <laughs> get anything done because they find they don't actually have a constituency. You know, they try to go to people who they think are their friends. Their friends are like, well, you just sold us down the river to the other side. And then they go to the other side and they're like, we still don't like you. Even if you gave us a, a bone, we want all this other stuff. And so he never really found that he had a constituency. And so I think the Taft years were just kind of people kind of were spinning their gears and, you know, the progressive part of the Republican party was mad at him. The conservatives didn't particularly like him, but they figured they had to stick with him because he was the only guy they had. So I, I, when we're talking about in 1912, the, the split of the Republican party in some ways, I'm not like, I think that Teddy Roosevelt probably causes it, but he's not the split. He's kind of an emblem of the split that's already happened. And I, I think that Taft, it would have been interesting to see if Roosevelt hadn't run in 1912. Cause I think Taft probably would have held on just, there was enough kind of Republican favoritism in terms of how people were voting and how the electoral co college worked in that time. But I mean, okay. he was not in a politically strong position. And I think that you guys are right in saying that enough progressives who perhaps were kind of more in kind of Wilson's, you know, populist progressivism vein were willing to jump ship and say, OK, well, let's give this guy a shot and see what he can do. As far as what the zeitgeist was at this like turn of the century time, you know, I think we at, when we've been talking about those end of the 19th century presidents and about how America was really at a modern economic inflection point, right? There's this huge disparity between haves and have nots um, at the turn of the century, you know, mostly caused by the rise of the, the growth of cities and the rise of industrialism. And then I think once you hit the beginning of the of the 20th century, that doesn't necessarily those those economic disparities don't necessarily go away. But with the rise of progressivism, you know, from just like a social movement uh, to an actual like political movement with a lot of power behind it, there is this sense that America is on the ascendancy, right, that um, that America and Americans um, can improve upon their lives and improve upon the lives of their fellow Americans. Um, and I, maybe in like this social Darwinist, you know, kind of sense, but also mm. in, I know, right. I didn't want to say it, but wow. <laughs> yep. Hey, so I mean, we'll get, we'll get there at the turn of the century. We'll get there talking about Wilson. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was as popular as spiritualism was a, a few yeah. years earlier. Right. But this idea that that you can, by providing a good education, a safe environment and a safe and efficient like workplace, that you can create a better people and you can create a better America. 
I think that's very much the sense. The uh, the, the sense I'm getting of the zeitgeist I'm getting of the zeitgeist is that there was a desire for change in 1912. Something was in the wind. I don't know that it was a desire for change. I I think I think Americans were heady on the fact that change had already come. Right, like the again, I think the transition from from progressivism social movement to progressivism political movement Mm -hmm. like it really makes average americans like hungry for progress right for for continued improvements on their daily lives um so i don't know that it's i actually don't think that it's that they want change i think they're like yes okay more of this change now there a difference between change and reform Ooh, I think so. Yes, I think reform is change politically and change is change. Taft monopolized the conservative vote, which was two whole states. Well, Um, I mean, I think also because Roosevelt decided to be Roosevelt and exactly split the right. Republican vote. I mean, that's really I mean, why yeah, Wilson, Wilson wins. Had, like, Wilson wins because the Republican vote is divided. Right. And, and Wilson like, has a solid South, and he does attract some progressives from Teddy, people yeah. who are just afraid of Teddy. Yeah. Even well, if they agreed with him. Progressive. Yeah. I mean, uh, ultimately, right. Wilson got 42% of the of the popular vote mm-hmm. in, in 1912. And it's, he didn't it's, do it's much not better in that all. Yeah, I mean, it's not guaranteed that all of the people who voted for Roosevelt would have voted for Taft, but it probably would have been a much closer election. Um, it is, after all, where William Jennings, Brian, 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 launched his uh, launched his political career. And he actually kind of helped solidify Wilson's political career. Cause oh, it was a big help to Wilson. Re- yeah, because it took a few ballots. And people were worried that Brian would come in and run and get the nomination again. And at some point he said, no, nah, this Wilson guy, see, he'll seem to work. Maybe three times running for president and losing is enough for one man. Harold Stassen, didn't he run? I presume in the Taft right? episode, you pilloried Brian for just throwing his hat in the ring there in 1908 again and being like, and maybe this time's the charm. Pilloried uh, Brian as many times as humanly possible. But anyway, I'm but also this sense trying of trying to do it during the rest of the 20th century, Paul. never have chosen those curtains. Why, if it isn't my old friend William Jennings Bryan? Why won't you come in and sit down? Uh, if you insist, Mr. Wilson, but I need to correct your use of the term old friend. Good heavens. Well, I thought we enjoyed cordial relations despite our differences. Have I offended you? Not at all. But I am in no sense of the term an old friend. I'm four years younger than you, and we've only known each other since 1912. Yes, I suppose you're right. Anyway, my dear Will, I summoned you here from Foggy Bottom. (laughs) Why are you snickering? Goodness, Will, don't you find that name just a little bit comical? I see nothing amusing about mist and low-lying swampland. Um, Yes, I suppose there isn't. Uh, Anyway, Will, I must confess I wasn't 
overjoyed when I read in the newspapers that you disagreed with my demand for reparations from Germany. I don't see why you shouldn't have been overjoyed. You were wrong, and I was right, and I corrected you. Be that as it may, Will, I'm not sure why you had to share your dissents with the press. I'll tell you why. I'm a very popular man, and people want to know what I think. I ran for president three times. Indeed you did, Will, but you did lose all three times. Exactly. The Democratic Party loves me so much that it nominated me even when I was doomed to fail. That's one way of looking at it, certainly. But the point is that I appointed you my Secretary of State, which means you have the privilege of advising me in private. On the contrary, Woodrow, I do not have the privilege of advising you in private. Will, how can you say that? With my mouth. And I have the responsibility of advising you, not the privilege. God gave me excellent judgment, and I must heed his will by sharing it with everyone. And your one obedient servant, Will. But do you understand how you've made us look weak and divided? Here I am, demanding that the Kaiser compensate the U.S. for its crimes, and there you are saying we should negotiate. And there I must correct you again. The Kaiser didn't sink the Lusitania, Woodrow. A U-boat commander did. Which he did in the service of the Kaiser, because Germany is at war with Great Britain. Exactly. Germany is not at war with the United States, so she does not owe us reparations. Nonetheless, I think we have the right to ask that Germany make reparations for the deaths of 127 Americans. By accident. Should we be asking the iceberg to pay reparations for the lives lost on the Titanic? Icebergs don't have ship-to-ship radio, but U-boats do. And this U-boat didn't issue a warning to the Lusitania. Of course it didn't. To warn a ship that you were about to attack it would destroy the element of surprise. Precisely, Will. According to maritime law, you have to alert the captain of a civilian ship before trying to sink it so he can allow passengers from neutral countries to disembark. The United States doesn't seem very neutral if we let our citizens sail on ships owned by belligerent nations. It's not Germany's fault if the American passengers on the Lusitania were inconsiderate of their government's neutrality. Well, some of those passengers were innocent children. I don't believe those children were innocent. How can you say that children aren't innocent? Because they are human, and therefore tainted with the sin of Adam. I know you're a Presbyterian, Woodrow, but you must be aware of the doctrine of original sin. Lord, help me. Uh, Will, your refusal to condemn the Kaiser's government makes you look like a German sympathizer. But I am a German sympathizer. That's why I accepted your appointment as Secretary of State. My God, Will, did you just tell me that you are a plant for the Kaiser? No, Woodrow, I told you I'm a human being for God. I'm a German sympathizer, a British sympathizer, an Abyssinian sympathizer, and everyone's sympathizer. God created us all in his own image, some inferior to others, but still... That is why I'm a pacifist. You knew that when you nominated me. Indeed I did, Will, but the situation has evolved. What does evolved mean? Look it up. Will, eager as I am to keep us out of the war, at least until after I'm re-elected, it's important that we look ready to resort to military force if necessary. But Woodrow, military force is never necessary. That's the signal you sent to the world by making me Secretary of State. Germany, France, Britain, you can have your warships and your cannons and your poison gas. We here in America believe in talking to each other, not killing each other. Through me, Woodrow, you told the world that America values words more than it does actions. Oh, enough of this. Will, I expect your letter of resignation on my desk tomorrow. If you insist, but once you receive it, what will you do? What do you think I'll do, Will? I'll accept it.
thank you for that. And then what happens? You'll have to find another job. Are, are you firing me? Yeah, I'd hope not to put it that way, but yes, Will, I am firing you. Much as I appreciate your support, I suppose your departure will be comfort to foreign ministers who are tired of drinking grape juice at diplomatic affairs. Why? Don't they like grape juice? But they prefer it fermented. But wouldn't it be an even greater insult to serve the juice from such old bottles? <sighs> Goodbye, Will. Okay, since um, I always take it on myself to ask a really provocative question, I'll do it again. Who was the worst? Who is the worst pandemic president? Woodrow Wilson or Donald Trump? <laughs> Ooh, coin toss. Ooh. Or possibly George <laughs> Washington, if we count that smallpox thing in the oh, early the smallpox. Yeah. Like, or Gerald Ford, if we go under Carter. I was going to say That's... Gerald Ford and swine flu. Okay. Yes. Smallpox long preceded the Washington administration and long survived it. Whereas the nineteen, you know, the nineteen eighteen quote finish close quote flu was entirely during. I guess there, you know, some maybe some of it trailed into the early Harding administration. Some, but was he all, even was Wilson even able to respond to it? Bum, bum, bum. We'll never know because he did absolutely nothing. <laughs> but you, our audience, could know if you go back and listen to our first special episode, Democracy Pandemic. What was that episode called, Joe? Pandemic Democracy, a sketch comedy about presidents and pandemics. That's right. Now, is it true that he had the country pretty much under martial law? He had delegated the uh, functions of censorship, not to his son-in-law, but to another member of his cabinet. I believe it was his attorney general, he had a director of propaganda, and I do believe he had talk of the Spanish flu silenced. Well, that's interesting because when we, those of us who were in school uh, prior to, I guess, the last 15, 20 years or so, we kind of looked at Woodrow Wilson in, I would say, somewhat positive terms. He- Glowing. <laughs> Yeah, positive glowing terms. He wanted to not be in World War One, but we did and we won. He wanted the League of Nations, which was certainly wonderful, but it didn't happen. He seemed to have some sort of tragic uh, ending of some sort and ended up, uh, you know, and, and but left with really good uh, approval ratings and the right to vote for women and nary a mention actually as far as i can remember of the spanish flu and that it even happened in during his watch or if it did well what could he have possibly done about it We've talked about other presidents that the hagiography has kind of been clawed away in the in recent history. So, I, su I suppose that's the yin yang of today's episode of how this glistening reputation versus the seamy underbelly of some of the things that he actually did. And so, as we go through all of that, since this is something that we sort of do anyway, you know, how did the hagiography get created, and how have we been able to claw claw it away? I was going to say, it, could you, couldn't you ask that about just about any president that we've had? Um, I know with Jefferson, 
he had many, many supporters, uh, sycophants, acolytes, uh, and I say this as a Virginia-born person, who you know were so willing to keep the mythology of Jefferson alive. And it wasn't within the last 20, 25 years that it became a little more uh, evident that he wasn't as saintly <laughs> and didn't necessarily walk on water uh, the propaganda that, again, I got when I was in high school. And it really, I wasn't think you can that... safely say Hoover never had a reassessment of his legacy, mostly because no one ever really thought he was that great, except for Alice Roosevelt. That's true. <laughs> you just don't know enough neocons. They <laughs> love him. But it's well, thank God for that. that. You know, I, but I do think, right, I think that's, that's exactly the, the kind of argument that I that I was trying to to make, right, about the his, changing historiography, right? Wilson is held up as this paragon of American liberalism because he's he's needed as that figure during the Roosevelt administration. He's he's needed as like a oh look what we're doing is not so new. This guy also did the things right, like and really the only template that they could go to, unless you want to go back to like Lincoln. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, and, you know, that still that still wasn't necessarily a template that even in 1930s, a Democrat wants to point to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I, you know, and I, I do want to bring this point back. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about why Wilson is so well regarded during the New Deal era and, you know, this World War Two immediately post-war 1950s era. Right. Because they're using Wilson as the kind of key figure of modern American liberalism to forward political ideas during that time. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, right. When we're, when we're looking at a much deeper history of authoritarianism, both Mm -hmm. in America and internationally, we tend to see Wilson's authoritarianism much clearer um, than, than they did during the new deal era. For sure. For sure. I, and yeah, the once once Wilson's in power, he is one of the most in terms of there's not going to be any opposition, especially when it came to foreign policy. Right. Um, one of the reasons we can assess Wilson and hold him up is that We've been talking about stuff that he did and almost nothing about him as a personality and a person, which makes it easy to build him up because, (laughs) hey, you know. Right. And there's so many things you can give Wilson credit for that he probably like wasn't necessarily like totally on board with, Mm -hmm. like the, you know, women's uh, voting like happened under his watch. But was he out there with the suffragettes? No, not really. Um, and, uh, even the federal reserve system, I, I don't know that he really understood it from an economist standpoint, but you know, it, it happened under his watch. Um, so he gets some credit for it. The tariff reduction bill was something that, you know, he was in favor of, but there were also lots of other progressives, including Republicans who were in favor of reducing tariffs. So there's, you know, he wasn't necessarily out in front on any of this stuff. But he does get some credit for it. Uh, and, it's it not like he, and it's not like he's a really magnetic communicator like TR clearly, like Teddy Roosevelt clearly mm-hmm. was. 
Um, again, as a speech teacher, I, I assign people to find speeches before 1920. And there are literally spe Woodrow Wilson speeches where one paragraph goes half a, you know, goes down half a page and it's one sentence. The man wrote speeches like he was an academic and Faulkner of the U.S. presidency. Pardon me? The Faulkner of the U.S. presidency. Oh, God, at least Faulkner had a sense of absurdism yeah. and grotesquerie. I mean, was Wilson I think... also the, the person who decided to give the State of the Union in person, like, permanently at that yes, point? Yes, he was the first. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure they loved that. Like, yeah, the <laughs> long-winded, abstract speaker in the history of the U.S. presidency. He's the guy who's going to come to Congress and deliver it in person? Oh, God. Yeah, first, first, live, uh, first live State of the Union, first press conference. Yep. And first motion picture to be shown in the White House. Oh. And that motion picture was Birth of a Nation. Well, you know, they quoted his book at the beginning of the movie. So I feel like they were just kind of quoting him at that point. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Good morning Mr. President. Well, what's the scoop, sir? Yeah, bringing all of the major reporters to your office sure seems like a big deal. I have assembled all of you from the press here so that rather than talk to you individually, I shall answer your questions by conferencing the great reporters of this nation's newspapers together. A conference? Seems rather inefficient to me. On the contrary, having all of you in one place is maximum efficiency. The important questions of the day addressed collectively for the benefit of the populace. But we report for different papers. Yeah, and I still would like an individual interview. I love it. How will it work? I'm glad you asked. I will call on you individually. You ask a question, I answer. Uh, like at one of my Princeton lectures. Brilliant. Sounds like school. I hate it, school. And like one of my Princeton lectures, I will first ask everyone to follow this seating chart, which is simply arranged by size of newspapers, seniority within the newspaper for which you write, total number of words you have written for each of your articles, and finally, the proper grammatical structures within each of these writings as determined by a special group of editors I called to the White House for just this purpose. Really? I told you I hated school. Uh, thus, uh, you. Me? Ooh. Uh, Mr. President, what are your views on your upcoming re-election campaign? Thank you for that question. What kind of question was that? All that, and he calls on the brown noser. I think this upcoming presidential election will be an opportunity to bring our party together and unite the country as we did when we ran our 1912 campaign with our party positioned well and my position as both party head and president. Three minutes later. And thus, our party and myself as party head and president will bring all Americans together. Thank you. Did you catch any of that? He sure loves the sound of his own voice, doesn't he? As a follow-up, sir. I'd hey, like to... back off, bub. There's a system here, you know? Uh, indeed. Next, according to the system. Question here, Mr. President. Uh, yes, you. Wait, but I thought you had... To... Mr. President, to... your views on the War of the Seas. Any chance our boys are going to be sent to fight the Huns? The Huns? So jealous I didn't think of that. Well, <laughs> war is something we should never have to fight as a country unless it is absolutely necessary to the well-being and safety of our own borders. 
went off on... Five minutes later... And then, of course, when the Civil War began, uh, once again, we saw Bloodshed and Brother... Five more minutes later... And so, I hope my concise views on the Great War are clear. Oh my god. They sure are, Mr. President. I wonder if you can clarify your comment on what I believe was the War of 1812. Uh, please, please, we must follow my procedure. Mr. President, I got What about all these rumors of women getting the right to vote? Well, as to the question of women's suffrage in the United States... Hey, you called on him already! Uh, to the question of women's suffrage. Fourteen factors must be thought of before responding. Uh, factor oh. the first. Twenty-seven minutes later... That is my 14th and final factor after my fourth subpoint and second codicil. I hope that is all clear. Oh, my dear God. Thank you again, Mr. President. One more question. Okay, okay. You, you got two of them. I didn't even ask one. Uh, our time has ended for today. Hey. I think that went quite well, don't all of you? Uh, Absolutely. Thank you, Mr. President. But, but I didn't get to ask a question. Same time tomorrow. Yes, sir, Mr. President. Wonderful system, Mr. President. Well, until tomorrow. Mr. President, I understand you saw the new motion picture of Birth of a Nation. Your views on it? I liked it. History writ by lightning. Good afternoon. Well, that was rude. Follow the system. Oh, system, schmistum. Maybe shouting a question is the best way to use this press conference rather than that damned seating chart. Hmm. hmm. I can't believe I'm about to say this, but if, you know, he had dropped dead in 1915, as opposed to, you know, his first wife, Helen, who left, you know, shuffled off this mortal coil in 1914, he would be remembered as a pretty damn good president. So all of this happens and we head towards 20, 2016, towards 1916. And of course, while all of this is happening in the United States, they probably have a little bit of superiority given what they're seeing happening over in the other side of the world in Europe. Which is saving America's economic cash because they're buying, you know, buying weapons from us. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah. Weapons, food, clothing. Well, and we yeah, were yeah. loaning them money. The, I always, so I, I have a couple of independent study students who are working on uh, the, they were working on the causes of World War One, and now they're looking at the, I, I'm really having them focus on like the popular reactions to World War One by like soldiers and people who were involved in it. But anyways, when I was like, we're talking about, okay, so why did the United States end up joining the war? And I'm like, look at the incentives the United States has. They loaned a lot more money to Britain and France than they loaned to Germany and Austria-Hungary. Mm -hmm. Defeated nations Ooh. don't repay their debts. Yeah. Guess who, yeah. Guess who needs to... Mm -hmm. okay. yeah. yeah. Ah, so are you it, their wasn't, just, it yeah. wasn't just the sinking of the Lusitania? Because that's what I learned in high school. That happened two years before the, we joined yeah. the war. Like, if that was the thing, yeah. it would have been the thing at the time in 1915. We and did it, not even break off diplomatic relations with Germany after oh. the sinking of the Lusitania. I, I just feel like that gift where you say, and I whoop. Um, oh god yeah. this is blowing my mind no, it all comes down to wiping out my high school education i'm willing to uh condemn woodrow wilson as a hypocrite you know for many reasons but 
I, the biggest reason was always that he ran in 1916 saying he kept us out, kept of, us war, out of war and less than a month into his second second term he's asking congress to declare war that's bad but well, supposedly part of you know one of the basis for that statement is not just that he kept us out of war in europe he kept us out of war with mexico well, Paul, he didn't run on he was go he's going to keep us out of war. True. It's all past. Very much a past tense. Past tense. I kept you out. I it didn't say I would never put out of you war. In. Tomorrow, who knows? <laughs> the training for because Gen- tomorrow belongs. That just doesn't fit on General Blackjack Pershing to lead American <laughs> forces in World War One was trying and failing to capture Pancho Villa. Oh, <laughs> oh God, that's right. Oh, God. After his um. After you know some incursions by Mexican rebels, I don't, I forget if they were the, if Pancho Villa represented the constitutionalists. I just know he was out of power, and there was a guy named Carranza, president of Mexico, whom Pancho Villa. So they spent. We actually sent troops into Mexico, but it still wasn't a war. Yep. <laughs> it, well, that never happened. Of, after yeah. Pancho Villa, they didn't catch him, but still wasn't a war. <laughs> and Wilson and, looks at Pershing and says, "Well, you did that, okay." Go try that in Europe. In trouble, on the Mex- and in trouble with the Mexican border, well, it was never a problem again. <laughs> well, well played, James. Mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Pershing was at least, well, at least in Europe, they don't run away as much. Yeah. <laughs> they, it's desert over there. So that line, ha- that line hasn't moved in years. With his strong encouragement, a sedition act, which allowed the U.S. government to suppress any anything they found objectionable oh gosh yeah i mean the sedition act but it's not just about the spanish flu right like it's about oh it's larger anti-war being openly german yeah exactly right like (laughs) being openly socialist lots and lots of the wobblies you know the world you know workers of the world the ww they were rounded up en masse and about a hundred of them were sentenced to prison in Chicago, and Emma Goldman was deported under that law. X3, X3, read all about it! Fed sending Reds to Russia! Pomerades busted Bolsheviks! X3, X3! Good God, those little news hucksters are even here on Ellis Island. Anyway, hello. I am Crusading Attorney Clarence Darrow, and I'm seeking a sympathetic client whose plight will shame Congress into repealing the Espionage and Sedition Acts and ending the government's power to deport any immigrant it declares dangerous. That's why I had the captain select four random women from the so-called Soviet Ark before it departs. I will take one of you as a client. The other three, I'm sorry to say, are bound for Moscow. Why well, represent only one of us, Mr. Darrow? I need a test case. I have been tested. I have no cases. Gracias, say every sailor in New York. Please. The boat leaves for Russia in five minutes. Introduce yourself and explain why you would make the best client in a lawsuit opposing the Sedition Act. You first. I am your dream client. 
Joanne Hill, born in Sweden and arrested at an industrial workers of the world rally for singing a song called Let's Have a War to End Wilson. Here, I'll teach it to you. He's a blabbermouth boy who said he'd keep us out of war, but he lied, boys died, mothers cried. That'll do, Miss Hill. I'll consider your petition, but I'm already defending Big Bill Haywood in Chicago, and another IWW client might give me a wobbly reputation. Besides, the uh, Toonsmiths of Tin Pan Alley might not want you as a competitor. Um, and you are, ma'am? Nurse Clara Bartoni of City Hospital in New York. And they arrested me for sending a letter to President Wilson. I've treated several Spanish victims, and in my message I say, shame on you for ignoring a deadly pandemic. You're being deported for that? What an outrageous miscarriage of justice. You'd be a great client. Yeah, well, maybe I shouldn't have added that postscript to my letter saying I had a Spanish flu victim lick the envelope. Guess she'll have to deal with it now. Ha, ha. I see. Well, Nurse Bartoni, I'll consider your petition, but I have much better luck representing actual murderers, not attempted ones. Next. How do you do, Mr. Darrow? I'm Olga Volga. And I got swept up in Red Scare because I am Scarlet Woman. Don't insult my intelligence. Oh, that is a problem, Mr. Darrow. Intelligence. I pick up young intelligence officer. It's named J. Edgar Hoover and took him back to my boudoir. Turns out all he wants to do was try on me dresses. He sent me back to Moscow to protect his secret. Yeah, thank you, Miss Volga. I'll consider your appeal. Yeah, that is considerable, is it not? but we might be pilloried for slandering a dedicated public servant. And who are you, ma'am? Forget your old friends already, Darrow. Well, Emma Goldman, <laughs> as I live and breathe. Wait, you're the Emma Goldman? Emma raised glass corn and more hell, Goldman? <laughs> they call me Wild Woman. Gee, Emma, I didn't know you considered me as a friend after calling me a coward for having the McNamara brothers plead guilty for the Los Angeles Times bombing. Oh, you should hear what I call my enemies. So what do you say, Clarence? Want to team up again like we did on the Turner case in 03 when we challenged the Anarchist Exclusion Act to the Supreme Court? And we lost. Oh, but it was great publicity for the cause, wasn't it? Of course, it? Emma. But I can only afford so many moral victories. Still, I'll think about representing you. Anyway, let me cogitate upon this decision. Cogitate? Mr. Darrow, the boat leaves in two minutes. And I've made my choice. Didn't say it would take long. Anyway, my client is going to be... X3, X3, read all about it. Prohibition law of the land. Sale of alcohol illegal in America. Extreme, extreme. Oh, I swear, newsy is short for nuisance. Anyway, before we were so rudely interrupted, I was saying that I'm going to represent... Not me. If they're shutting down the beer halls, working men can't get wobbly enough to become wobblies. Not me either. When I convince man to buy me drink, I want vodka, not Pepsi-Cola. Not me either. The hospital will be filled with bullet-ridden gangsters when the mob takes over the liquor racket. And not me either. If I can't drink, I don't want to be part of your revolution. 
Sorry, Clarence. I'm sure you'll find a sympathetic client to bolster your reputation someday. <laughs> Maybe there's a progressive science teacher somewhere down in the South. A progressive science teacher in the South? I might as well try to inherit the wind. Well, I actually let's let's talk about the you you talked about sickness and that might be a good way to start to wrap the episode up a little bit because sickness plays a huge part in multiple in a couple big ways with the end of the Wilson administration, both with what happens to Kim and of course with the Spanish flu, which we've talked about. And it really does, one of the things that struck me when we did the pandemic episode, which everybody should listen to, those of you listening to this episode, uh, was how in a lot of ways, the Spanish flu was really erased in, a, in so many ways from American history, other than, it happened, oh, yeah. but the disruption, the length that it, and the length that it, you know, the length of it, the aftermath, which we've talked, which again, we talk about in the pandemic episode, but, and, but again, but even going back to how we interpret, how we think about Wilson, the fact that we really didn't think about the Spanish flu at all until COVID says an awful lot about what we do or don't think about how good or bad Wilson was as a president. You want to talk? Yeah, you were talking about the hagiography. Wilson caught the Spanish flu. I don't think that's in dispute anymore. He caught it while he was spending six months letting the country go to hell while he was in Paris negotiating a flawed peace in which he sacrificed his principles for the League of Nations. Okay, I set that one up. We'll set that one on the T, but it's Indispu indisputable that yeah he had he contracted the spanish flu it weakened his constitution he had been predisposed to strokes and other types of ischemia during most of his life he'd actually had a couple previously now are we we're historian people are you taught that wilson got uh contracted the spanish flu you're not. I don't remember that specifically. I mean, I, obviously, it overlaps with his presidency, but um, mm -hmm. I guess I'm not really familiar with. I don't really know that there was a whole lot of like federal level mitigation efforts. I know that there is a lot of local and state level mitigation efforts. But again, a lot of those things I've only really found out about since COVID when we started to kind of dig into the history of this. Um, honestly, and, and this is the last question on my unit three study guide has to do with it. And it's like, what event caused the deaths of millions of Americans in 1919 to 1921? And the answer is the Spanish flu. And that was all I taught about it. It's like, this happened. It was bad. We're moving on. And, you know, that's, that's probably, you know, not to my credit because this clearly was something that was more rending than we really kind of thought about. It just, like you said, it had kind of drifted away from public consciousness until we found ourselves in, another pandemic yeah i believe it was in march of 1919 when he was in france when he suffered that bout of influenza when he was you know trying to work with clemenceau i think it was lloyd george and uh the italian prime minister the italian major orlando. italian diplomat what'd you say orlando orlando yeah. vittorino 
Mm -hmm. Torino. So he had a little trouble holding this coalition together and blocking the punitive measures that all of them wanted to inflict upon Germany because he was too busy puking his guts out from the flu that he refused to recognize while president of the United States. I mean, luckily there weren't any negative effects to the punitive measures taken against Germany, right? Oh, no. They, you know, <laughs> Certainly not. We inflation. never had to worry about Germany again. Yeah. And, um, then, and was... then the United States, in part because, again, the hagiography of the League of Nations failure, but also because Woodrow Wilson has a debilitating stroke and probably wasn't the president of the, for the last few months of his term. Um, but the uh, Wilson in the treaty that he wanted the U.S. to sign with Germany and Austria-Hungary, whom the the only other country would, on whom we declared war. Um, there was an article. Article ten was you know if the establishment of the League of Nations, America would be either morally or legally obliged to interfere in an armed conflict at the behest of this league. That caused great, big, fat, enormous problems. It gave the Republicans a rallying cry, and it was never a problem again. That wasn't their rallying cry, but that was the thing that sunk the treaty. That's why he had to make takes. Uh, that's why there were so many reservations implemented by his biggest enemy, uh, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge. So that's where maybe if he had been able to make direct appeals to the American people, if he hadn't, you know, what he was trying to do when he got the, had the stroke. In what state did he have the stroke? Ooh. Say, don't say drunkenness because that's too easy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to look because I now I want to know. I think it was Colorado. I might be wrong about that. <laughs> it was the, the air was not good for him and his recovering from the Spanish flu. Yeah, it just says the West. Hmm. Well, Colorado is West, so maybe I'm right. All right. Anyway. I feel like Colorado is one of the states that we haven't blamed for, for anything yet on this show. So it's all Colorado's fault. Come at me, Colorado. <laughs> and bring munchies because I love your weed. But anyway. So the idea that he would have run for a third term had he been able to seems a bit far-fetched. But he was thinking about it. Oh, he wanted to badly. Hmm. I don't think he was particularly popular by 1920, though. I mean, no. I, think, I think the country didn't like the result of World War I. I mean, I, I, you say, well, maybe if Wilson could have gotten out there and argued for the treaty, I don't think it would have mattered. I, I think mm -hmm. that, that even was though it? the United States didn't lose that many people, it still lost a lot more people than it had lost since World War One, you know, and so enough people had had uh, since the Civil War, you mean, or since the Civil War, it is World War One. And um, then you add the pandemic on top of uh, this, the yep. Spanish flu on top of that, right? Which I'm not sure that it, it's totally fair to blame Wilson for the pandemic, but it's still not good, right? I mean, yeah. when bad stuff happen and you're the president, you get blamed for it, whether it's your fault or not. Um, and so I, I and I think that. There just wasn't a sense that there had been a whole lot of purpose to our entry into World War One. Like Wilson might have been able to sell it from kind of a 
paid, you know, the, this whole like we have to work, make the world safe for democracy. But like, OK, 100,000 people are dead and the war is over. Great. OK, so how is the world safe for democracy now? And, you know, especially when we've got a red scare in the United States being perpetrated by the attorney general whom Wilson, Mr. Progressivism and liberal had appointed. That's a re one of the reasons the country didn't fall apart. He delegated a lot of responsibility to his cabinet members. They're the ones who ran the economy during World War One. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, he perpetrated the Red Scare. Oh yeah, I'm gonna have to know his name soon because I yeah. talked about that. Thomas um, R. Marshall. That was the time you were mixing up with with James Cox. Yeah, he was pretty much an American fascist. And, you know, by 1920, the progressives are totally disillusioned with Roosevelt, right? I mean, between... Um, Roosevelt or Wilson? Or, or with, with, with Wilson, because... Roosevelt you know, is dead. Yeah, Roosevelt, Roosevelt Wilson, died, And yeah. Wilson's coming. Yeah. Um, you know, his, his authoritarian turn during the war, I think, soured a lot of people on him. I think people were, you know, pissed off that he put Eugene V. Debs in jail. Um, and so... I did not pardon him. Right. Yeah. Refused. Um, At least a lot of Midwesterners are. Maybe yeah, like yeah. East Coast elites are not upset, but like Midwesterners. Yeah. Radical. Well, and East Coast elites weren't Democrats for the most part anyways to begin with. So, I mean, at least in his own constituency, there's not really a lot of people who are like, yeah, more more Wilson. Um, people, I think, are just give me another shot of Wilson. Right. <laughs> um and and to and again, this is how I think the Treaty of Versailles represents the ultimate failure of progressivism. Because it, fairly or not, people basically say, "Well, this movement didn't succeed," and right. people are basically willing in 1920, I think, to say, "Forget it. We don't want any more change. Let's just go back to normal or whatever that is." Normalcy. Right. Normal. Yeah, right. Wasn't that normal. wasn't that Harding's? Yes. Return to campaign normalcy. back. Return to normalcy. Right. Oh, and uh, correction, Paul. The attorney general was A. Mitchell Palmer. Yeah, I was yes, going to say Thomas Palmer Raid. Thomas, Thomas Palmer, Palmer Raid. Palmer Raid. Palmer Raids. Yes. Yeah. I have an Arnold Thank Palmer you. with your Palmer Raids. Well, um, we yeah, I was going to say will. Thomas Marshall was the vice president. That's right. And I've been talking about him, so I've just had too much coffee and my brain isn't working correctly. No, but, but I, I will right say, thing. I will comment oh. that the biography, that horrible biography of Wilson that I just read, did point out the very hysterical. The blackly funny irony that we refuse to reelect this, you know, sick, debilitated, you know, sick, debilitated man to the presidency and the uh, healthy studly type who replaced studly Republican who replaced him died before Wilson did. Yeah. Oh, we'll get to that stud in a few in the next episode, y'all, because, well, when we talk about a return to normalcy and Warren Harding, Maybe that is more of the normal thing than we think it is. We don't know. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written and produced by Gina Bucola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joay, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. This episode's sketches were performed by Gina Bucola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page 
at fracturedatlas.org. Donations are tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque, and join us on the Trident Network. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe, and don't forget to like.